0: I'm starting a brand new series. I think we're going to do five weeks on, it's called Old Scratch. It's on Satan, demons, uh, the demonic realm, exorcisms, possession, ghouls, ghosts, goblins. uh, And I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a lot of fun got a lot of great things to talk about. This is just the intro week, but we've got a lot of, lot of place to go. I've mapped out most of the weeks, and so I'm really looking forward to it. You might be thinking, what the heck is the name Old Scratch? Well, as I've told you before, Old Scratch, it's, a, it's an old folk name for Satan. Uh, it comes from a Norse word, they think, which is a skrat, S-K-R-A-T-T-E, uh, which means uh, wizard, and so it's just an old-timey name uh, for the devil that I personally like. And just to, just to be perfectly honest with you as we start, this is the kind of series that um, I hate, or no, I don't hate, I love, but I hesitate uh, to preach. And the reason is I think that this is one of those topics that ends up weirding people out a little, you know? Even when I was telling Marshall and Cindy that I want to do a series on, you know, exorcisms and stuff like that, Marshall said, really? Really? And he was like, I was like, yeah. And he says, you're brave. I was like, or stupid. It's one of of the two. But I know that it does, um, it tends to polarize and it makes people feel kind of uncomfortable in a way. I really love all that kind of stuff, but I know that's not the feeling uh, for other people. But I do think it's an important thing to talk about. And I want to start off by saying this, that I believe that we as people, not just corporately, but individually, I believe that we are influenced by things we don't see. Like, I really, I actually believe that. Like, I think we always talk about how God is at work even when we can't see it, right? And feels like, God, what are you even doing? Like, Jonah, right? Are you sleeping? Uh, we feel that sometimes, but God is always working in the background even when you don't see it. And I, I believe that that's only one side of the coin. I also believe that there are these forces of darkness. I actually believe this, as weird as it sounds. Even saying it, I feel like some of you guys feel like this is absurd. But I believe that there are forces of darkness that absolutely impact your day-to-day life. I actually believe that. I think that there's forces of darkness that affect your marriage negatively. I think that. Um, and so, so it's important for us to uh, talk about it, I believe. And so let me start off by saying this. We are... You could write this down if you're taking notes. We are in the middle of a cosmic war. It's something that we're born into. The, the world is a war-torn world. And this is something that happened long before we came here, and it continues even to this day, and it affects us all. You know, the scripture has tons to say about the forces of darkness in the spiritual realm. Jesus, for example, I, I was telling a friend a couple of weeks ago just how challenged I am by the fact that Jesus, Jesus in his life, his brief three-year ministry on the planet, his primary miracle, you might think, oh, I probably like healing people, right? He was a big healer. Actually, his primary miracle was exorcism. That was, you could say what was, what was his vocation in the ministry, you would say that Jesus was an exorcist. That was his main thing. Everywhere he went, he was casting out demons. More than healing people, more than almost anything else, he was doing exorcisms. Uh, you look at Paul, who wrote a great deal of the New Testament. He All the entirety of his writings are replete with these forces of darkness and how they negatively affect both our minds and our lives. Then you go to the early church, first, second, first, second third century, all the writings, they, they have a huge... Um, they put a huge weight on the influence of spiritual forces, both good and bad, and how that affects their ministries, their churches, and their lives. And so for the West, I think for us, we live in like a really well-developed nation. It feels to some of us probably kind of silly, right? To be like, really? Like like demons? We're going to talk about demon. Like, doesn't that feel like a little bit um, medieval, perhaps? And I, I, in in a sense, I think it does, but I would say this, that that I think that not believing in like the forces of darkness tend to be um, a luxury that just shows that we come from a life where we're pretty sheltered, right? Like, like I think very few of us, if you except for the news, probably very few of us have ever have the experience of like overt evil. But did you know that we're almost worldwide? Uh, places other than here, it is universally accepted that there is a cosmic struggle that affects the human world. This is true in Latin American culture. This is true in African culture. This is true in Indian culture, that we are in a war. That's also a big part of Christian culture, too. Uh, It's funny, I was trying to think, like, if someone has an opinion on Satan, let's say, um, after first service, people came up to me, you know, with all their, like, cool theories about all this. And I was like, like, okay, why... why do you think what you think about demons in general? Where would you have gotten that idea? And I think of some like non-extra-biblical texts in the Christian tradition. Show of hands, has anyone read the screw tape letters? Y'all remember 2016, I think, we did a series on the screw tape letters. It's a book by C.S. Lewis. It's one of my favorite books, but I believe it's probably the most um insightful book that I have personally ever read when it comes to the supernatural realm. But what's hysterical about it is it's totally fiction. It's written by this uncle, Screwtape, to his nephew, Wormwood, both of them being demons who are trying to pull people away from God. But it's so brilliant and it's so insightful. there's lots of pastors, hundreds and hundreds of terrible books were written in the 80s by pastors with super specific ideas about demons that most of them heard from like their Aunt Flo that have no basis in hardly. So I think, I think the screw tape Letters, though, is a different story. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Uh, show of hands, who here has read uh, This Present Darkness by Frank Peretti? Y'all remember that? Everyone that raised their hands showing their age... It came out, I think, in like 1981 or something. But it was this book, and it was almost like a horror movie. But it's, you know, people are going about their daily life, and there's all these spiritual things that are coming and taunting them. It's funny, you read the book, you're just going about your everyday life, you think everything's cool. By the time you're done with this present darkness, you are casting demons out of your couch. They're everywhere. But uh, also, I was thinking, I was laughing the other day, I I just have to go back to it every so often, that when I was in youth group, it seemed like the world was always coming up with cool stuff. And then the church was always making these weird, awkward knockoffs, you know, like we had our own animation, there was Disney, but then we had our own Christian cartoons. And and, uh, nowhere is this more true than rap. My gosh, so like, so like the world had gangster rap. So, you know, early 90s, let's see, like Tupac. Um, people came after first service and told me all these rappers, and now I can't think of any of them. Oh, Snoop Dogg, NWO. Anyways, all of these rappers, and it was like straight-up gangster violent rap. So the Christians responded to the gangster rap with Christian rap. So now instead of it being like, I'm going to bust a cap in a cop's eye, I'm going to bust a cap in the devil's eye. So it could be as violent and vulgar as we wanted, but as long as it was like pointed towards devils, uh, it didn't matter. No one was more graphic, in my humble opinion, than T-Bone. Please tell me that somebody else had this CD besides just me. Oh, Holly, you had it? We might have shared a copy. I think it might've been blue on the bottom, so I'm not sure he was that big of a deal, but Uh, T-Bone, he was a rapper and he was just violently anti-demon. Every song was about killing Like he was doing drive-by shootings of demons. Uh, In fact, I I do have some lyrics for you uh, of T-Bone. So I'm just gonna warn you, the white is gonna come out of me real bad. Here we go. Because I'm a straight up psycho, sick in the head, lynching them demons with a bat. Because them Christians understand I be that straight up psycho, lynching them demons with a bat. Rat a tat tat goes my gat. This is gun talk, I believe. When I be pushing up on that trigger, that be on my steel, and that's for real. I be knocking them demons out like holy fields. Well, buck, 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 yeah, them demons be getting struck, because a demon tried to do me wrong. He's lying to me trying to tell me that Jesus didn't love and he wasn't real. So I stole up on his grail. I st- what does that even mean? I got up on my knees and started lynching them that demon with a spiritual prayer. I'm not sure you guys really appreciate the work that goes into these sermons. This is research. You know. It's not every day T-Bone gets brought up in sermons, so it's a pretty special day. Uh, So, of course, Christian culture, it's everywhere, but also in secular culture. I I love telling the story. I remember when I was about 10, the first time I saw the movie The Exorcist, Show of hands? No? Okay. You don't have to raise your hands. I know a lot of you have seen the movie The Exorcist. Well, I saw it. It was on like regular TV, probably like a Halloween special or something, midnight. So I had the TV on and I'm just a little kid, and I'm watching The Exorcist, not knowing what I was in for. And you guys remember that scene where um, she's a demon possessed girl, you know, in her little white nightgown? And she's crawling, you remember when she's crawling down the stairs on her fingers uh, and toes with her belly up? going down the stairs. Anyways, I saw that, and I froze. It's like I couldn't breathe. I was just the most scared in the world. Like, it was my body shut down. And and at that point, you know, of course, I I started to have to pee. I needed to pee. But that required that I get out of bed, and that was not happening. So... (laughs) So I, uh, true story, I ended up, I grabbed my Bible, like my illustrated children's Bible, and brought it with me to the bathroom. I don't know why, like, if if a demon was in there, I could hit him with the Bible or he'd be impressed by my Precious Moments Bible. But anyways, yeah, so I was trying to remember what my point was. Oh, yeah. Secular culture. Also, of course, there's things like uh, The Conjuring. Y'all know that I like scary movies. Uh, the Conjuring is a movie that I love. It's about uh, uh, possession. And what's interesting about The Conjuring, though, if you've seen it, you may know this, is that it's not gory, it's not graphic. Um, and it was, it's made, you can read uh, interviews, it was made by these two Christian brothers who uh, they said their, their goal in making the movie was to get people to consider that perhaps there's more happening in the world than meets the eye. And they wanted to show a powerful evil, but a more powerful God who comes to, of course, triumph uh, in the end. I don't know if you've heard this, but, but recently the Vatican has announced for the first time in like a couple hundred years that they are deliberately training more exorcists that they believe right now they're going to need more exorcists uh, than ever. So it's interesting that, that uh, for me, on one hand, I totally believe in all the stuff. I believe in all the stuff. But on the other hand, I'm, I'm an intellectual guy. So there's definitely this, this cynicism that I think exists in me when it comes to all of that kind of stuff. Like, I don't know, I deal with a lot of people who are in a lot of different life stages. Uh, it would take a lot for me to be like, I think that person has a demon. I just, I'm not sure when I would go there. You know, I would think like they have a mental disorder. They would, but hardly ever. I don't think I've ever had the thought that person has a demon. But I do believe all that stuff, but I do come with a sense of skepticism at the same time. So just know that if you feel skeptical about all that kind of stuff, it all feels so weird. Just know that you're in good company. Um, I think there's like this continuum. On one hand, you have people that are pumped that we're finally talking about demon stuff. Finally, we're talking about the real spiritual stuff. Like they want us to bring people in, do exorcisms. Like my, my ex-husband would be a good place to start. Bring people in. <laughs> they would love us to be like a ghost-busting church where we're calling out territorial spirits. And on the other hand, you have maybe people, maybe in the middle that are thinking like, I can't believe that you guys are talking about that. Like I thought you were regular people. This church is so weird. And then on the other hand, you have people that are like, get this demon talk out of here. Now, just talking about it, I'm going to have a nightmare, you know, because just any any sort of talk. And I think both of those extremes, both the extreme of unhealthy fascination with... The demonic realm and total ignorance of it are both a mistake. In fact, C.S. Lewis, he, he would say it like this famously: there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. That's mistake number one. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Right? So on one hand, Don't believe the other one. Believe too much in an unhealthy interest. So we're not trying to do either of those. We're trying to um, read and learn while not obsessing. And just to uh, give you an idea where we're going, my goal in all of this is to have the one source of information for us be only the Bible. That's not always the case, but in this particular series, only the Bible. If it's not in the Bible in particular, we're just going to say that we don't know. The reason for that in particular this topic is that there is so much bad bonehead information out there. You know, you guys remember like Dante's Inferno, people well, you know, I don't know if you know this but there's seven circles of hell and all the different, you know, blah, blah. look, could be. But if it doesn't say it in the scripture, we're not talking about it in this particular series. So, I'm more than happy for you to come to me after service and tell me, you know, my aunt Flo thinks that there's five different kinds of demon that Again, could be, but we're not talking about it in this series. This series, it's only what we can find in the scripture. Okay, are you ready? That was a long intro. My time's almost up. Okay, here we go. Who is Satan? That's the question. That's what we're addressing today. Who is Satan? Is that just something that we kind of made up? Is that an idea? Like, where did we hear that term? Did someone, did he personally introduce himself to us? Well, it comes from the Bible, of course. The Old Testament, the, the first Two-thirds of your Bible were written in Hebrew. The New Testament in the back was written in Greek, and both have a word that we translate into Satan. In the Hebrew, it's Satan, the Satan, which means the accuser, and then we have Greek, which is uh, Diablos. And in both cases, they mean the same thing. They essentially mean adversary, accuser, and prosecutor, which I think is really interesting if, if you'd think maybe like a courtroom. Can you picture a courtroom? I was in a courtroom this past week for a friend, on, on one hand, you have the, uh, the defense, right? And the other side, you have the prosecution. So someone's on trial. The prosecution is trying to say that that person is guilty, right? And the defense is trying to say that that person is innocent. And what's interesting when you go to the Bible is that the word that we translate Holy Spirit is this word paraclete. And what that means is this defender, which is, which is in stark contrast to the word that we translate Satan, which means prosecution, right? And so you can see that this courtroom, that, that humanity is on trial and the Holy Spirit is defending humanity while Satan, the, the, the accuser, is the one saying that we're guilty, there's lots of other words that we uh, know now have to do with Satan that we find in the Bible, and they all kind of show us a little something about Satan. A few examples, we have Beelzebub, uh, which you'll read about. This is translated Lord of the Flies or Lord of the False Gods. We also have the Prince of this World. We also have Prince of the Power of the Air, Prince of Demons. And lastly, we have God of this Age. And those all show us something about who Satan is and how he operates. There's really two we're going to do just a little bit of scripture. There's really two places in the Old Testament that t- that seem to show us the origin of evil. Where did evil come from? And I'm just going to warn you, we're going to read them both. They're both kind of weird. They just, they're just weird scriptures. They're, they're very prophetic in their language. And so, so it requires possibly a little bit more work, but I do think that they're very cool. And so we'll go through them. Here we go. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. When talking about Satan, it says this, How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, listen to this phrase, I will, this is Satan saying, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the cloud. I will make myself like the Most High. Verse 15, but you are brought down to the realm of the dead, To the depths of the pit. So it's interesting scripture here. What we see is that Satan comes and he makes these five "I will" statements. Right? I will. I will. I will. I will. I will. And it shows us something that's very important to understand when it comes to all of the angelic realm, which is this: is that Satan is what theologians would say a free agent, which to which is to say he has a free will. He has the ability to make choices. He has a will just like you uh, have a will. He has choice. Ezekiel chapter 28, we'll jump around just real quick. This is, a, Ezekiel 28 It's a cool chapter. You should read the whole thing when you get home, if you get the chance. Ezekiel 28, it's a, a prophecy against this earthly king. It's a, his name is the king of Tyre. So he's, he's this earthly king and he, he, judgment is being pronounced on him because of his pride. And so the prophet's going and pronouncing judgment on this earthly king, king of Tyre. And then about halfway through, it's like his brain like stops and he reboots and he starts saying the prophecy again. But now instead of talking about the earthly king, he's talking about what's happening in the spiritual realm, the things that are motivating the king. And so you can see that like the beginning phrases are kind of the same. For example, verse one of Ezekiel 28, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the sovereign Lord says. So clearly he's talking to, this, to the king of Tyre and then there's the prophecy. But then jump to uh, verse 11. This is where it reboots. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, see, that's the, this, almost the same phrase that he's, he's restarting his prophecy. But he says, this is what the sovereign Lord says. But he, now he's not just talking to the king, he's talking to the spirit that's motivating the king, talking to Satan. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. So, so you can already see, how is, how is the king of Tyre in the garden of Eden? It doesn't make any sense. No, he's talking about Satan. Satan was in the garden. Every precious stone adorned you. And then all kinds of stones that I won't pronounce for my own ego. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed, talking about Satan, you were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you says God. You were, the only, you were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. Verse 15, listen to this. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones." Lastly, verse 17, your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. So it's interesting that that we learn a number of things about Satan here, but one thing that's a big deal is this, that when God created Lucifer, he created him, which is to say another name for Satan. When God created Lucifer, he created him good. He, he, just like humanity, right? Good creates good. So he creates this beautiful creation, Lucifer. And, but, but like humans, with that goodness built into us comes the ability to choose, right? Why, why would God ever do that? that? That sounds risky. It is. It's the great risk of God to, to make creations that can say no to him right? That's what C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis says, the greatest miracle God ever did was making creatures that could say no to him, right? And so, so that's the great risk. Why would he take that risk? Because of love, right? He, he wants to enter into loving relationship with his creation. And there's no such thing as love without choice. If you, if you aren't choosing to love someone, that's not love. That's something else. Can you love a robot? Totally. Can a robot love you? Probably not right? Because a robot, if a robot can't choose, in order for me to love you, there has to be an option for me to not love you. And so, so God builds, us, builds within us the opportunity to make a choice for good or for evil in hopes that we'll make the right choice. And that's built into Lucifer himself. Although in his particular case, he chose and continues to choose the wrong path, which is the, the way of pride, trying to exalt himself above God. Are you with me? First Timothy chapter three, verse six, just a couple more. So this, this verse, it sort of seems weird because it's almost like a side note to what the scripture is actually about, but it does show us something very important about Satan. This is uh, Paul telling Timothy what the qualifications are for an overseer in the church. He says this in verse six, an overseer must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil, wow! So just in in passing, he tells us what the judgment of the devil was. The problem with the devil, why he was judged, was because he became conceited, right? Pride, that's the problem. And so, so it's uh, interesting. I think pride, because because pride, I think, is really insidious because it's by nature self deceiving. Like the, the most, the, the more proud you become, the less likely you are to think that you are proud. I'm sure you, I'm sure you probably know people like that. Not you, and you see your coworkers, right? So unaware and always convinced that the things they do is always right, right? But pride has within itself, one of the reasons it's the worst is because it's always self-deceiving. You hardly ever do people understand how proud they have really become. Uh, that's not the truth, that's not true for all sins. Take it, for example, let's say your your sin of choice is lust. You just go around and you're lusting after men and women that you see. Well, you probably know it. You probably are aware of that. Or let's say uh, your sin of choice would be gluttony. And every time you put on your pants and you suck in the flab, you see your sin bulging out of the sides of you, right? You're aware of it. The pride, pride isn't like that. Pride is, pride is subtle and it's uh, self-deceiving. And so that's why, uh, you know, you have like a pastor or a friend or a parent that says like, you know what, maybe you're not as perfect as you think you are. And maybe it's time for you to repent. Proud people hate that because they never believe that they're the problem. They they always believe that the problem lives outside themselves. And so you can see in Scripture, it's a huge theme in Scripture is humility, right? And humility is not thinking, oh, I'm just a pathetic worm. Like, that's not humility. Humility is submitting your will to someone else's will, right? To where someone else gets a higher opinion than you. Well, maybe, well, I think that blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, you know, but if, but if you're really humble in the Christian context, you would say, what's more important than what I think in this situation is what God thinks in this situation, right? That's true uh, humility, which is exactly what Satan lacked. He wanted to put himself above God. Last, last, Revelation chapter 12. Uh, I hesitated. I almost took this one out because I didn't want to make all kinds of weird comments on the book of Revelation that would just detract from my point. So I'm just going to be quick. I've got like a seven-part series on the internet if you want more Revelation stuff. But the book of Revelation is a weird book at the end of your Bible. It's It's so um, extreme. It's called apocalyptic literature. It's a well-known type of literature that was in Jesus' day, which we don't write anymore. And it's got all this huge, vivid imagery with dragons and fire and everything has like a certain number of heads. And that's not only in the Bible. You can read lots of other, you guys familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls? Well, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found lots of apocalyptic literature that has this exact kind of writing that's communicating different types of things. So so we have to understand that that some of the things that are happening in the book of Revelation are symbol for what it's actually trying to communicate. So for example, when we see Jesus in the book of Revelation, he's a slain little lamb, a lamb that has just been killed, uh, and he has seven horns and seven eyes. So we don't believe that if Jesus were to appear to you right now, he would be bleeding on your kitchen floor and be an actual lamb with seven eyeballs. We don't think that, but we we do think, so what does that symbolize? See, we don't believe that Jesus has seven eyes, but we do believe that Jesus has perfect wisdom. We don't believe that Jesus has seven literal horns, but we do believe that Jesus has perfect power. And so, so in the book of Revelation chapter 12, you find this really interesting scene where there's this woman and she's working to give birth to a child and the son, he's going to be the new ruler. And he, does that sound familiar to anybody? Anything earlier in the Bible that that kind of rings a bell, a woman is gonna give birth to a son who's going to be the ruler? Well, in the book of Revelation, there's also this great dragon and the dragon has seven heads and he has seven horns, or ten horns, and this dragon wants to kill the boy. And so there's this big war that goes on over the life of the boy. Revelation 12, verse 7. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. It's the big battle verse eight, but he was not strong enough. This is Satan. He was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan. So this is helpful. Now you can see, oh, the serpent and the devil and Satan. That's talking about the same thing. It says right here, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with them. Verse 10, then I heard a loud voice say in heaven, now have come the salvation and power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser, talking about Satan, the accuser of our brothers and sisters who, this is interesting, understand this about Satan, who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Lastly, verse 12, therefore rejoice you heavens and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. I think it's funny scripture. It's saying like all of us in heaven are pumped that Satan's out of here, but bad news for all you people on earth because now he's your problem. And then listen to this last sentence. He, talking about Satan, he is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. Here's what you have to understand about Satan. Satan hates God. Hates God. And I, I, he hates him because he's greater, because God is greater than he is. He hates that. And I believe because of that, he is, Satan is resentful towards human beings because we are made in the image of God which is more than can be said for any angel, any demon, or Satan himself. Only humanity is made in the image of God. And so because Satan wants to challenge God, but he can't, he rages against God's image bearers. He rages against the people whom God loves. Okay, are you ready for your five statements? Are you thinking I forgot about the handout? I didn't. Okay, here we go. Five, five and we're going to go so fast. Number one is this, Satan is not a metaphor, allegory, or symbol. Satan is a real created being. Satan is not a metaphor, allegory, or symbol. Satan is a real created being. Some theologians would come, um, maybe on the more progressive side of things, they would say that Satan is maybe not so much a real being, but he's symbolic of the evil that exists within the human heart. Look, that's a fine thing. If you want to believe that, you can believe that. But you can't really say that that's what scripture says. That's, that's not what scripture says. Like, like the, the Bible consistently talks about Satan as a real created being. You go to the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that are, go into great detail and great length talking about Jesus' personal interaction with pe- with beings in the supernatural realm that wish humanity harm. And he's not talking about them symbolically. He's talking actually to them. They have names, they have desires, and they do things with their free will. And you may be thinking, oh, that's kind of like, but isn't it kind of like metaphorical? The gospels are not metaphor. You can't, you, can, you don't know how to do that. It, the Gospels, you have to take at face value. You have to. You want to go to the book of Job and talk about like the Leviathan or whatever, the great sea monster that has, you know, all the all the heads and stuff. And you want to believe maybe that was metaphor, the primitive understanding of evil. Totally cool. That's fine with me. Or go to the book of Revelation, the lamb with seven horns, seven eyes. No, it's a symbol. That's fine, but you can't do that with the Gospels. The Gospels, you have to take at face value because, because if you don't... Um, the Christian faith literally crumbles, right? Without taking the gospels literally, like if you take Satan as maybe he's just metaphor, what's to stop you from saying perhaps Jesus himself is just metaphor? What's to stop you from that? The answer is nothing at all, right? So the gospels are taken literally. They're written as historical documents. Satan is not a metaphor, allegory, or symbol. Number two, Satan is not God's equal, Satan was created by God and is weaker than God in every way. Satan is not God's equal. Satan was created by God and is weaker than God in every way. Of course, you know the, the creation story in Genesis chapter 3, we're still in the garden here. We're meeting the serpent who later in the Bible now, we, back when Genesis was written, it doesn't make it the equation that the serpent is Satan, but later on in the Bible, we finally make that connection. So when we first meet him, it says this, and you probably know this, Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. It's an interesting verse because here, um, they're describing Satan as a wild animal that God made. A very smart one, the smartest of all of them. But he does say that that Satan is essentially a wild animal that God has made. So we don't live in this yin-yang universe where, where we have God and we have Satan and they're equal but opposite forces that somehow keep the world in balance. That's true for other things, but that's not true with God and Satan. Satan is weaker in every way than God. He was, he was created by God just like you and me. If, if, there's a, if there's a God and creation scale, he's over here with the rest of us. God alone is the creator. Okay, number three is this. Satan hates God, yet cannot defeat him. So instead, he wreaks havoc on the people God loves. Satan hates God, yet cannot defeat him. So instead, he wreaks havoc on the people God loves. Number four. Satan's primary downfall was pride, which serves as a strong warning for us all. And number five, as we prepare for communion... Five, the gospel is good, is good news about the defeat of evil and our rescue from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. The gospel is good news about the defeat of evil and our rescue from the kingdom of God, darkness into the kingdom of light. Here's what's amazing is that, that our salvation doesn't just save us from something, right? It's not just like now we are saved from sin, we are saved from death. We are saved from hell. It's not only that, it also saves us into something. We're saved into something. And so in this particular case, it's the kingdom of God. Right? And what is the kingdom of God? Well, it's, it's a kingdom, so it's a dom domain that centers around a king, a kingdom. And so in this particular case, our kingdom centers around Jesus. It's the kingdom of God, also called the kingdom of heaven. And in the kingdom of God, God's will reigns supreme. What he, you know, what he wants reigns uh, supreme. And so, so our um, part of our admittance into the kingdom is to acknowledge Jesus as the one true king. And as we uh, close, you, you've probably heard that phrase a lot, right? The, like the will of God. Doesn't that sound like something a preacher would say? The will of God. It sounds like, that's preacher talk, will of God. What do they, they even? All that means is what God wants, right? The will of God, what God wants to happen. And so you have the will of God as opposed to the will of anything else, right? Certainly true of Satan, right? The will of God as opposed to the will of Satan, but it's also as opposed to, the, to your own will, right? What, what, what you think. Um, also is something that comes under, uh, under submission to what God would ultimately have to say. Remember, remember Satan, I will, I will, I will. Remember him five times, I will, I will. And then Jesus comes and even when facing brutal torture and even execution, remember, remember his prayer? Not my will, but your will which serves as an exact opposite to what Satan's response was. Satan's response was this, I will. And Jesus's response was this, not my will, but your will. And then when he teaches the disciples to pray, remember what he says? He says, this is how you ought to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done. So here's the question, and then we'll receive communion. In what way do I need to change my heart from my will to your will? In what way do I need to change my heart from my will to your will?